Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, Donald Trump went to Iraq and right in front of the entire United States. And why this is not the lead story in the news, I don't understand. Violated the law. The Hatch Act says basically you may not use federal property, federal facilities, federal money for money-making businesses or for political activity, principally political activity. This is why presidents, when they go overseas, they don't talk about domestic politics. They don't talk about the opposite party. Trump goes over to Iraq and lies about the Democratic Party. He says, oh, the Democrats want an open border, which is not true. It's simply a lie. But just as soon as the word Democrats came out of his mouth, he was in violation of the law. And everybody's like, well, I guess that's just what happens. And they play the clip over and over on TV, and a lot of Republicans are listening to this going, oh, the Democrats want open borders. So, oh, the Democrats don't want him to have... Really? He broke the law. And then, and then he tweets out a picture of the, of the Navy SEAL team that is supposed to be top secret and outs them. And then he tells us what a great sacrifice he had to make to go there. They had to turn off the lights in the airplane and close the window shades. Really? And then he tells the troops he got them a 10% pay raise when he didn't. He just makes this stuff up and lies about it. How many lies? I mean, you know, Hunter over Daily Coast, he asks, how do you pick a Trump lie of the year when there have been so many? He suggests, Hunter over Daily Coast suggests that the lie of the year should be uh, Donald Trump's use of the phrase witch hunt to describe what Robert Mueller is up to. But Trump going to Iraq and using the troops as, a, as political props is despicable. I mean, in, in fact, I think that Josh Campbell nails it. He says, these three things can all be true at the same time. This is on Twitter. He says, a president honorably visiting troops overseas. Yeah. Deployed troops, grateful to see their president. Yep. A White House using troops as political pawns and photo ops. Yep. And I would even go farther than that, you know, a, an out-of-control president who doesn't understand the rule of law or does understand it and doesn't like it, explicitly breaking the law for purely partisan advantage in a way that's criminal. Meanwhile, speaking of criminal, the, we've got children now in the custody of the U.S. government, in children's prisons, thousands of them. 
And in the last few weeks, two of them, a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old, have died. The most recent, Felipe Gomez Alonso. And Kirsten Nielsen comes out and says, this is a verbatim quote, our system has been pushed to the breaking point by those who seek open borders. Again, the open border lie? Really? And this is our chief law enforcement officer. This is the head of the Department of Homeland Security. She says, moving forward, all children will receive a more thorough hands-on assessment at the earliest possible time post-apprehension. Wait a minute. You weren't already doing that? You're tearing children from their parents' arms and sticking them in freezing cold jail cells for days at a time, weeks at a time, months at a time, and they're getting sick and dying, and you're not even bothering to find out if they're sick? And then she says, oh, well, you know, we've got a problem with illness coming from Mexico. The children who are coming to the United States, these refugees, these are not migrants, these are refugees. These refugee children have a higher vaccination rate than many of the states in the United States. Meanwhile, Trump goes to Iraq and basically disses the Iraqi government. This is a sovereign country now. We put their government back together after we destroyed it. And the leadership of the government, by the way, is an Iran-allied Shia Muslim and a Kurd. And they have now said, Sabah al-Sadi, the leader of the Islam parliamentary bloc, he says, to discuss this blatant violation of Iraq's sovereignty, he wants an emergency session of the Iraqi parliament. To stop these aggressive actions by Trump, we should know his limits. The U.S. occupation of Iraq is over, he says. Keep in mind, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died so that George W. Bush could get reelected in 2005. It's, it's breathtaking. It's just breathtaking. And now Thomas Friedman coming out saying, hey, time for the Republican Party to fire Trump. And I think a lot of Republicans pay attention to Thomas Friedman. You know, he's a good neoliberal. He's, he's wrong a lot on things like trade, but I think he's right on this that if you don't have the Republicans on board, it's not going to go anywhere, right? You've got to convict him in the Senate. It's going to take two-thirds of the senators, which means that you're going to need at least, what, 20-some-odd votes, you know, a little short of 20 votes on the Republican side to go along with all the Democrats. You'll be able to get it through the House on a simple majority vote once Nancy Pelosi is head of the House, but you've got to have those Republicans on board to go along with the Democrats in the Senate. So, you know, we'll see how this all shakes out. Chaz in Lakewood, Washington. Yes, sir. And hey, may I wish you and your family and staff celebrando las muertos, a very happy Diwali, Hanukkah Samich, Yo Saturnalia, Glad Yule, Happy Festivus, Merry Christmas, Happy Boxing Day, and a Happy New Year. And uh, Kwanzaa, Chaz. You know, it, folks don't celebrate Kwanzaa as much as they used to. There's an interesting background about that, but I agree with you. It should be. I think it might just be that it's not getting as much publicity because it's an explicitly non-commercial holidays, so nobody's making money advertising on Kwanzaa. I wanted to talk to you about immigrant paradox. I know that it's something that would change the conversation a great deal if people knew the background of it. I'm surprised you don't talk about immigrant paradox more often. Are you familiar with it at all? Yeah, you can get to that in just a second. I would say the background of Christianity is pretty shady, too. But anyhow, okay, immigrant par- paradox. <laughs> I, w- I would certainly agree with you. Our ability to co-opt, uh, uh, what's the term that uh, folks are accused of, uh, co-opting other people's uh, cultural uh, appropriation cultural appropriation yeah, yeah we're pretty christmas good on is, that, the, is the biggest example that. of that yeah 
Anyhow, yeah, you I don't were saying. think that's a bad thing. I lived in a Navy town, and, uh, you know, we kind of pick and choose from, uh, you know, certain clothing, food, customs, family values. Uh, I think it's all good. I, mm-hmm. We're all, you know, we're all contributing to that melting pot. But immigrant paradox is the uh, concept where folks that come in, they're not committing crimes. The natives are committing more crimes. But immigrants that are coming in, typically are healthier, they're more productive, and they do not commit as many crimes as, say, the nationals. And I think that we need to show that without immigration, our population would actually be declining. And uh, I did a rant some time ago and said that, you know, some very important folks were contributing to the lifeblood of uh, the United States. Yeah. And and by the way, because uh, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador and Mexico all have national health care programs, the rate of vaccination among children who are coming in as refugees uh, right now is higher than the rate of vaccination in the United States. See, that's something we never talk about is I don't I can't get a lot of background on Honduras, Guatemala and El Salvador. I know that like 10,000 people started on that march. Only 10 percent of it made it to the border. A lot of them settled in Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. Along the way. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. And the other part of the immigrant thing is that there is this maybe immigrant paradox is the word. I don't recall. There's there's actually an anthropological or sociological descriptor for the fact that immigrants tend to start more businesses. They tend to be the, the, you know, the original small business entrepreneurs. Yeah, I've said in, uh, that 51% of billion-dollar startups are created by immigrants in, wow. in America. You know, I mean, a third of uh, Nobel Prizes come to American immigrants. Wow. Wow. See, these are these are my rant, Tom. Check out my rant. Oh, you mean uh, that you uploaded to our website? You know, I've got to get Louise to do that. I don't know how to do that. Louise, (laughs) Louise has it. And and we've got to get to them. Chaz, I'll do it. Thank you very much. Not to blame it on Louise. Who is a Republican politician who blames something on his wife? I'm sorry, Louise. Charles in Gold Hill, Oregon. Hey, Charles, what's up? Hi, Tom. I would like to talk about some of the logistics involving the wall. I have talked about the design. To further the design, they need to establish the route. Now, the setbacks and the electronic surveillance will also have to be considered in that, and they're going to seize this property from private landowners, and they are going to keep animals, farmers, uh, cattle ranchers, and everybody from accessing the, the water at the Rio Grande. I was just wondering what your thoughts were on this. Wow. I, you know, that last part, I had not even considered. You've got a lot of cattle ranchers and farmers, uh, presumably, who have ranches and farms that border or that abut the Rio Grande, and I'll bet that their that their animals are, and, and, and they may even be using it for irrigation, are, are using that, and they will be cut off by the wall. Uh, we had a caller uh, earlier from somebody who lived in a town near the, near the border. If anybody knows the details of that, I don't know, Charles, off the top of my head, but if, if anybody knows what impact that's going to have, give us a shout. I'd love to hear about it. And, and it makes perfect sense, Charles. Your, your point makes perfect sense. And there's no discussion about this because, you know, nobody's taking it seriously, what Donald Trump is trying to do. It might be a good argument against him and to point out that it could take 10 years in the litigation for taking property via eminent domain yep. could be a quagmire. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Kilo decision notwithstanding. Absolutely. And, 
Interesting. Charles, thanks for the call. Uh, and, and I would add, Charles, I'll, I'll bet in terms of low-hanging fruit, in terms of you know places where a lot of people come across the border and where it's relatively easy to build a wall and you know the near population centers and all that kind of stuff, I'm guessing all those already have a wall. Wayne in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Wayne, what's up? Hi, Tom. I have another wall question. We know that the religious right has support of Trump, or they're supporting him. I have a biblical question for you that deals with the uh, the immigration at the southern border. For example, like we hear about these Honduras families fleeing because of almost certain death yeah. from criminals and things like that. In the Bible, like I think it's in the book of Matthew, if we had like a Pharaoh Trump mm. during biblical times when, when Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were fleeing, King Herod wanted to kill them. Right, and they went to Egypt. If Pharaoh Trump put up a big wall between uh, Egypt and Judea and prevented them to get crossing it, would we have had a whole different story in the New Testament? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's an expert at 2 Corinthians. Do you think he's ever read, uh, uh, yeah, both read of them. Uh, Matthew? <laughs> No, I don't think he's ever read Matthew. I don't think he's. I don't even think he's ever read Second Corinthians. The, what's interesting that's an is analogy, analogy to the, what we're happening in the southern border. No, you know, you're absolutely right. Story and, and, was immigration. And in fact, the Washington Post had an interesting story. Trump and Pence both went to the National Cathedral, which is a very progressive church, for Christmas this year. And in both cases, they heard a sermon about how Mary, Jesus, and Joseph uh, had to flee and go to Egypt, and they were able to make it back because there wasn't a wall. Uh, yeah, or had, uh, implicit in the story. So they actually, Trump actually heard that, uh, although apparently he was in jolly good spirits and very nice to everybody, but he actually heard that story and said to Pence, who knows? Wayne, thanks for the call. Yeah, the inconvenient truths. We all want to find the perfect unicorn gift to give at the holiday gift exchange or to family and friends that'll really stand out, right? I have one that will be the talk of the office, a hit with friends and family, and will actually be useful. Tiger Lady. Tiger Lady has been featured in Runner's World Gift Guide two years now. You may know Tiger Lady as the revolutionary self-defense tool based on a cat's retractable claws. When you make a fist, three claws come out like a real-life wolverine. It's lightweight and designed to collect DNA. Tiger Lady doesn't require training, and it's legal in all 50 states. It's recommended by police and self-defense instructors, making it the perfect stocking stuffer for anyone on your list. Tiger Lady will make your loved ones feel aware and confident when they walk alone. Order by December 14th for free shipping in time for Christmas. Go to TigerLady.com or use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, for a 25% savings and to receive a free whistle LED flashlight keychain while supplies last. Give the gift of safety this year by giving Tiger Lady. Remember, use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, and go to TigerLady.com. That's TigerLady.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norma, what's on your mind today? Hi, Dr. Tom. You were asking about the logistics of the wall. Mm -hmm. One of the things most people have never heard of is the fact that there is a Native American reservation that spans both sides of the border. They have had what is called a temporary barrier that stops vehicles, but it does not prevent the passage of people walking through, nor of animals like is their cattle, deer, and other species. Mm. One of the big problems is that the environmentalists are concerned about building a wall that will prevent species from going back and forth and will limit the gene pool of all types of animals. Right, especially the migratory species like the big cats. 
Yes, any kind of animal that lives in the area. But I personally don't think a wall is the right answer. If they're going to do something, I think it should be a ditch, a very deep one that would prevent all the tunneling. Because as long as you have borer machines tunneling under a wall, you're wasting the money to put up a wall. Carlos Guzman was his name, the guy who tunneled under the wall in San Diego? Yeah, and you know how they, they tunneled under the English Channel for a train. Yeah. And so it is really very foolish, in my personal opinion, to put up a wall when anybody can go under it. Well, the reality, Norma, is that from the founding of our Republic in 17, our modern Republic in 1787, right up until the beginning of the George Herbert Walker Bush administration, there was basically no wall. And we did not have a, quote, illegal immigration problem. We don't have an illegal immigration problem right now in as much as in the last 10 years, the net number of people who've come into this country is below zero. That's what we have, have here in Alabama. Yeah. Whatever ha Hispanic population we have has decreased dramatically. And if you're going to worry about something, I would worry more about other races coming across the northern border. You can't tell whether or not an Asian person or someone from the Middle East walking back and forth across the border anywhere from British Columbia to Newfoundland is American or Canadian or from a foreign country. And when you have the lakes there that are not patrolled, and they can, anybody can get in a boat and go from one side of the lake to the other. And a lot of people don't know that a lot of the men bring in a wife this week and bring in a second wife another week into the Muslim communities. Nobody is thinking about what effect that has on the economy when only one wife is considered legitimate and the others go on every federal program there is. Hmm. I don't I don't know anything about that, Norma. But I, I watched a, uh, a documentary on that. It was on Link. But, um, but the, but the biggest issue is that the vast majority of people who are in this country, quote, illegally, it came in on tourist visas or educational visas or working visas and overstayed their visa. Yes, there's a man running a... He finally had to become legal. He had been here in the States, in, in Asheville, North Carolina, running a cabinet shop for about 10 years. My son worked for him, and he realized that the guy was illegal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, and, and I, I think this is kind of emblematic of what's going on. A friend of my son's was born in Mexico, and he has a green card to be here in the U.S. right now. His kids are actually U.S. citizens. And he and his, uh, his brothers are buying land in Mexico. They're going to, you know, I mean, they're making good money here, but they're going to retire back to Mexico. And I get it. You know, I get it. And that's what's been happening for the last 10 years. I mean, ever since the recession, basically, is that people have been leaving the United States, not coming. There is no invasion. Donald Trump keeps going, oh, there's an invasion. There's, a cri there's no crisis. There's no invasion. You got some, well, you know. I think that he has people who are advising him who are white nationalists only. Yep. And their intent is to play Trump like a fiddle and make him get rid of anyone who does not have a white North European Oh, but Stephen interest. Miller does not need to play Trump for this. I mean, this, this goes back to the Klan rallies that Trump's daddy was part of. And yeah, arrested for. Their message lands on very fertile ground. Yeah. And, yeah. But Absolutely. You know, it's, it's ridiculous to put up a wall when anybody can go under it. Yep. By the way, uh, I got an email for Christmas from the RNC because, you know, I gave five bucks to the Trump campaign back two, three years ago. And, yeah. uh, or Fred Flintstone got this. And Merry Christmas, I guess it says, from, from all of us at the White House or whatever. And then down at the bottom, you see Donald J. Trump's signature. And then next to that is two other scribbles that are identical style. Presumably one's Melania and the other is uh, Barron, his son. 
And uh, I, it just reminded me, I think it was Tom Tolles, I might be wrong, it was one of those cartoonists who does this kind of stuff. They took Donald Trump's signature, blew it up, you know, larger, and then drew two little dots kind of in the middle of each one of those vertical strikes. And it looks like a whole series of clan hoods. Yep. And but but apparently his wife and son have the same identical signature to him. It's just it was just totally weird. You know, this this clan hood series of clan hood signatures. I tweeted it. out. Anyhow, Norma, I got to run. Thank you for the call. It's fascinating stuff. Bobby in Lafayette, Indiana. Hey, Bobby, what's up? Well, I'm just wondering the conversation with the wall. Yeah. Fence or whatever they call it now. Yeah. Beaded curtain. Uh, Why the conversation don't start with the fact that the reason they're fleeing their countries is the actions that we took back years ago with the banana republics and the Iran Contra and yep. during the Reagan administration. It just don't make no sense to me. Yeah, we took we these countries down. down for a fraction of what the wall is going to cost, we could be building democracies in, in those three, in Nicaragua, Honduras, and, and El Salvador. And have good neighbors. Yeah. Amen. Amen. It makes no sense. Yep. I don't understand it. You are a wise man, Bobby. Thank you for the call. Very well said. Bill in Sierra Blanca, Texas, listening on 1350 AM. Hey, Bill, what's up? Hi. Yes, I was just saying that I was, I'm a rancher here in far west Texas on the Rio Grande, and uh, we own about... Uh, well, I'd say we own at least 6,000 acres. We used to own 100 sections, which is on the river, but we only own 6,000 acres now. And so that's about six miles of river frontage. This is private property. I heard you asking about it. Mm-hmm. And we proposed this back in 2008 under Michael Chertoff, under the Obama administration when they were building wall. They had an easy time because that was all public lands, uh, I should say, federally owned lands with a boundary commission and whatnot yeah. here in 2008, Texas. by the way, would have been uh, Trump, or it would have been Bush, but but back to your story. Well, no, it was, uh, they built a wall under Obama after, oh, yeah. after Bush went out. It no, I know, that continued, on. yeah. So uh, I'm not yeah, defending anybody here, Bill. I was just, uh, 2008 was the election year. It wasn't the first year of the next yeah, administration. But, no, but, but, but what's your point? 500 miles, uh, Tom. Uh, they built over 500 miles under Obama. And I yep. voted for Obama. I supported him yep. both times. But I'm just saying, I'm just saying that members of Congress, when they passed that Secure Fence Act, they didn't count on ranchers. And some of us are conservative. I'm, 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 I vote for the person, not the party, Tom. But they didn't count on us opposing this stuff. They're going to, like you said, they're going to have a tough time in court using intimate domain to take our private property under mm-hmm. the takings clause. Yeah. So you've got six miles of uh, waterfront on the on the Rio Grande that Trump wants to put a wall through. He wants to take much all of that apparently away from you. We're talking to Bill in Sierra Blanca, Texas. Are you using the river for irrigation or for your cattle or whatever? Yes, Tom. We have a farm and a ranch. It's about 6,000 acres. So your listeners need to understand when they built a wall or they call it fencing, whatever, it's still a wall. When they do that, they don't just build it around the river. They're going to build it at least 100 yards away from the river. So that creates like a no man's land where we can't even get through our animals. So it's just like taking a lot of land. Plus, it would just completely devalue our farm. We wouldn't even really be able to make a living. So, you know, the true loss of that would be the entire farm. And we don't want to sell. It would just be the the property they take it would it would end our our way of life in farming and ranching and my grandfather started this tom in 1916 wow so bill how do your neighbors feel about this particularly the ones who might be uh, fox news watchers and trump supporters well i'll tell you you know a lot of them are still opposed to this intimate domain is 
out of control in Texas with the oil and gas for these pipelines by energy transfer partners that are just taking ranchers' land. And we're getting sick and tired of being forced to sell our land for pennies on the dollar. We don't want to sell it at all. So this is already rampant with the Texas Railroad Commission here in Texas for oil and gas pipelines to Mexico. There's several big ones here, Trans-Pecos and um, Comanche Trail, huge ones that are going to Mexico. And they took a lot of land from people for pennies on the dollar. And we're not going to put up with the federal government doing this as well. There's a point where ranchers will say no more. Wow. Don't mess with Texas. Bill, thanks a lot for the call. Thank you, Tom. David in Indian Trail, North Carolina. Hey, David, what's up? What is the actual opposition to building a border wall in between Mexico and the U.S.? It's the least efficient and most stupid way to have border security. First of all, you could put a fence up. Walls require enormous maintenance. They're very expensive. And, uh, you know, the only people who win with walls, broadly speaking, are concrete companies and, and construction people like Trump. A, and B, large portions of that border are, are places that people can't even get through. I mean, you got cliffs and bluffs and mountains and whatnot. Nobody is suggesting that we shouldn't have a border with Mexico. Nobody is suggesting that we should have an open border. This is this is a lie that Donald Trump has told on Twitter. It's a lie that Fox News and right wing hate radio repeats. The Democrats want open borders. Nobody wants open borders. You can't have a country with open borders as as the Europeans, by the way, are discovering. I, I always thought the European Union was a huge mistake. And we're seeing that played out right now. It's blowing up in their faces. That said, There are really appropriate ways to deal with this. We had a wide open border with Mexico for the first 200 and some odd years of our existence as a country. And again, if you want to dig into this, David, just Google Bracero, B-R-A-C-E-R-O. Google the old Bracero program that Dwight Eisenhower put into place in the 1950s. It was basically, you know, we'll give you a seasonal pass to come into the United States. Every year throughout the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and early 80s, right up until 1986, you had about a million people who came north in time for the picking season, particularly uh, up the West Coast. And about a million people who went south after the picking season was over because no other industry would hire people. Because up until 1986, if wealthy white employers hired people who did not have U.S. citizenship or or a visa to work here, they went to jail. Reagan stopped that policy in 1986 as part of his... It actually, the, the law still says that if you hire somebody who's not legal, you go to jail. But Reagan stopped enforcing that law at the urging of the meatpacking industry and the construction industry who wanted to break their unions. This was part of Reagan's anti-union program. Those were two of the most heavily unionized industries in the United States. He stopped enforcing that policy, and guess what? Now those industries are no longer unionized, in large part because of this. And so 10 million people said, hey, you know, the the employers can now hire me. I think I'll go to, to, to America. Wouldn't you? So if you, you know, this is, by the way, David, Mitt Romney is the guy who made this the corner piece of his presidential campaign in 2012. Um, He called it self-deportation. He said, you know, if there's no work and you don't qualify for benefits, if you're not a citizen, people are going to leave. And sure enough, actually, over the last couple of years, we've had more people leave this country from south of the border than come into this country. So A, there's no reason for hysteria, and B, if you want to know who's responsible for the policy that has caused 10 to 14 million people to come to this country, talk to your Republican friends. Thank you for your call. You're welcome, David. Thank you for the call. Steve in Zimmerman, Minnesota. Hey, Steve, what's up? 
Good afternoon, Tom. I just wanted to have you verify something regarding Trump's wall. Yeah. He keeps on trying to justify building this wall because of his overwhelming concern for border security. So he's almost been in office for two years. It's my understanding that we've only spent 6% of allocated funds for border security. Am I correct on that? That's my recollection. Yeah, they appropriated a whole bunch of money. It was a little short of a billion dollars, I think, of two years ago. And Trump has not spent that money because he doesn't know how to run a bureaucracy. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't know how to run a government. A and B, a million people a day cross the southern border legally through through legal checkpoints. They go back and forth. A million people a day. The 9/11 hijackers did not sneak into this country. They came in on tourist visas. Millions of people a day come into this country from all over the world. Many of them overstay their visas. You know, if we have concerns about having too many immigrants in this country who are not here legally, as I said just a minute ago, don't let them work. It's real simple. Yeah, well, hasn't there been two immigration reform bills that were bipartisan yes. that got stalled out on somebody's desk who didn't want to bring it to the floor? Yeah, 2015, I think it was. It actually passed the Senate with, as I recall, 84 or 86 votes. It was a bipartisan bill. And it would have caused employers to go to, you know, wealthy white employers to start going to jail if they hired people from south of the border who are not citizens. And Paul Ryan refused to allow it to come for a vote in the House of Representatives, dancing to the tune of the billionaires in this country who run the industry and the industries that want to stay non-unionized. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, thanks a lot for the call, Steve. Sue in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Sue, what's on your mind today? Oh, I was just in Delray Beach, Florida. Um, I live in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. But I was visiting a family uh, member, and um, we noticed that the uh, construction workers across the street and the roofers were all speaking Spanish. And we thought, well, why aren't there any white people or black people? I mean, just down the street, there's a black slum with lots of soup kitchens. And it just, you know, it causes resentment in me. And I'm a very liberal, you know, I love the Spanish culture, all this, but I bet you they're making $8 an hour. Yeah. And it, it's, it causes resentment in me, and it causes resentment in my daughter. She's younger, and she uh, actually voted for Trump because of immigration. Yeah. And, you know, how do you feel about that? I, I absolutely understand that. And, and this is the genius of Ronald Reagan saying we're no longer going to enforce the laws against hiring people who are not in this country legally. He did that with the clear and explicit intention, and that was what it was all about. And it worked. And now you've got industries that used to be entirely unionized and were really, really good high-paid jobs that are now low-paid jobs that are filled with labor that is not American. And, you know, right. and, and Sue, thank you for the call. Uh, we, we just need to go back to enforcing the laws. We need to start putting employers in jail. Somebody tweeted to me yesterday a, a piece about how Trump is going to put employers in jail and how they had, they had uh, busted some uh, 7-Eleven guy. It wasn't the actual, like the corporate, you know, there was, there was no executives involved. It was some franchisor or franchisee, rather, who himself was an immigrant. I mean, it's just, it's like, come on.
As you probably know, Louise and I are basically vegans who eat fish once a month, but odds are you're not. Omaha Steaks has a really great product for the holidays for, for those of you who eat meat. This is the gift that families across America have loved for over 100 years. Right now, Omaha Steaks has an amazing limited time offer for my listeners. When you go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code REPORT and you'll get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. Originally $195, now just $49.99. Order now and you'll get four hand-cut tender top sirloin steaks, two safe premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha steak burgers, four kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, plus four more burgers for free. Omaha Steaks is a fifth generation family owned company with over a hundred years of experience delivering perfectly aged beef hand cut by master butchers in Omaha. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com Enter the code REPORT, R-E-P-O-R-T, REPORT, in the search bar and get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. That's omahasteaks.com, code REPORT. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Brad in Loganville, Georgia. Hey, Brad, what's on your mind today? First, let me hope that all of y'all there have had a very happy holiday and continue to do so well thank you happy new year to you too brad and and all that everything else (laughs) yeah i've got a uh a poem i've come up with a couple of years back and i thought i'd like to share it with your listeners it's called greed g-r-e-e-d if it's it's very brief brad you can go for it okay we discourage um, people from reading on the air but well go for it okay it says republicans currently are making the call of how, when, and where the the earth shall fall. Taking care of your own should be number one. Accept what you've sown or will all be done. Nothing will be left for the human race by wasting money in outer space. Peace, not war, should be our creed, but Republicans care less of our needs. When we ask for help, they say we'll pass. Reality is they have no grasp. So thanks to them, with all their needs, the earth will end along with their greed. Oh, my God. That's a brilliant poem, Brad. It really is. Thanks. Uh, Thanks. And and Uh, well said. Go ahead. uh, One one other thing real quick. I was born with a birth defect, and for the last 40 years, I've kind of had the uh, mindset, mind and matter, even if you mind it, don't matter. So I was able to work through it. But the last 10 years, I've been disabled. I've been on disability. I had to swallow my pride and go get it. Yep. Uh, the Social Security Administration has awarded Social Security recipients 2.8% for the 25 or 30% cost of living uh, of inflation rate. But the $33 a month that I got, they took away my food assistance, they went up 200% on my Part D drug plan and about 24% on my food assistance. So that $33 a month real quick turned into about $1 a month. That's just for anybody's information that, that isn't aware of that. But I do really appreciate your time. Thanks, everything, for what y'all do. And thank you for taking my call. Happy sure. New Year. Yeah, thank you, Brad. So, so just to be clear, you actually got a raise on Social Security disability insurance. And, and by the way, everybody listening to this program should realize, you know, whether you're in your 60s or whether you're in your 20s, 
if you were born injured, as Brad was, if you are, uh, you know, if you like my friend Michael Hutchison, he fell off a bridge jogging one morning in Santa Fe and fell into a river and broke his neck and he was paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of his life. And he was in his 40s when that happened. You have a literally a lifetime insurance policy that's worth tens of millions of dollars over the course of your lifetime, depending on how young you are when you get injured, that will protect you. It's called Social Security. So, Brad, you're saying that when the, the Social Security raise was wiped out by they're jacking up basically the premiums or the co-pays on other things. Correct. They are 2.8%. Again, I've been on disability now for nine years, and the nine years combined, it has averaged out to 1.1%, which, you know, it is appreciated. But again, they take yeah. away my food assistance and the other stuff. Yeah, and that's nothing close to the to the medical inflation that's going on, especially with drugs. Brad, thank okay. you for sharing your story with us. I appreciate it. It's great to hear from you, and thank you for watching Free Speech TV. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you on the line with us is John Nichols, the national affairs correspondent with The Nation magazine, the author of numerous books, including Horseman of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. You can find his most recent writing over at thenation.com and uh, titled The Trouble with Patrick Shanahan. John, welcome back to the program. Tom Hartman, I knew you were going to like this story. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. You know, you, you should uh, send me a flag when you, when you do this stuff like this. This is incredible. So Patrick Shanahan has been requested by Trump or appointed or whatever as the Secretary of Defense. Tell me about this guy. Well, he's the acting Secretary of Defense. But because Donald Trump is in so much trouble and there's so much controversy surrounding his decisions uh, as regards defense policy, it's very likely that the person he puts in as acting Secretary of Defense could be there for months, you know, even longer. For, could be there for a very, very long time. So this is a very powerful person in charge of the entire Pentagon, in charge of really the biggest, you know, kind of operating budget in the federal government by, by any measure. It's like over $700 billion, isn't it? Yeah, and, and rising constantly. I mean, it's, appro- um, it's approaching, uh, you know, a, a tenth of our GDP. I mean, it's mind-boggling. Well, yeah, and, and, and dwarfing what the rest of the world spends. Yeah. And this guy has no foreign policy experience, has no military experience, but he has 31 years' experience at Boeing, one of the top defense contractors for the U.S. government. So effectively, and I'd say this in the piece, uh, the only way that he can be explained is that he is the physical embodiment of the military-industrial complex. Right. We have put the military-industrial complex, which has always been too powerful by, by any measure, we have now put it in charge of the Pentagon. It's breathtaking in a way. What impact might that have? I mean, historically, the Pentagon's either been run by former Secretary of Defense or a general. Well, actually, you've researched this. I'm just talking off the top of my head. Who historically has run the Pentagon and why? And why would they choose this guy? Well, here's the, the interesting thing. Historically, the Pentagon has been run by civilians at its best. Not always. Uh, but historically by civilians, and certainly in the post-World War II era, there's been a real effort to put civilians in charge of it. There's a reason for that. We have civilian control of the military. We are not some sort of tin-pot state with generals running, you know, all the big decision-making. And so by and large, we have tried to have civilians there. The civilians who have been there have never been, you know, like, 
pure innocence, you know, the perfect person you might choose. Right. They've always been people who've had ties to, you know, powerful players and, and in some cases to elements of the military industrial complex. But you've never, ever had somebody who has been a 31 year lifelong top employee of a defense contractor. You know, like somebody who's really, this is all he's ever done. And this is the important thing. Just I can sum it up in a phrase from the Seattle Times, which obviously covers Boeing very, very well. When Patrick Shanahan was selected to be the deputy secretary of defense, they noted in their profile of him that he had no foreign policy experience. He had no diplomatic experience. He had no military experience. But he had all this Boeing experience, and it noted that he was especially familiar with the procurement policies of the Pentagon. Wow. So, you know, basically they're saying that this guy is qualified to run the Pentagon because he knows from the point of view of a defense contractor how these things go. I mean, is that essentially what he's saying? Yeah, without a doubt. And that he's, he's not stupid. There's no question of that. In fact, he's a very smart guy. He actually, you know, he's got top degrees. And, you know, he's, he was a high-level executive with Boeing. There's no question of any of that. But here's the interesting thing. If you remember back at the start of Trump's presidency, one of the things that Trump said was Air Force One, which was being built for the federal government, was way too expensive. He said, well, they, they cut a bad deal here. I'm going to cut a better deal. And it happened that in cutting that better deal, Trump had quite a few meetings with executives from Boeing. And then shortly after those meetings, Patrick Shanahan was selected to be the number two guy at the Pentagon. So this is a guy who's coming in to an administration that the president had somewhat threatened his company, somewhat threatened Boeing with a, a tighter uh, grip, if you will, on, on spending, coming over from Boeing into the Pentagon. I mean, can you imagine a worse scenario? Well, uh, Dwight Eisenhower actually imagined this scenario. And if you've got 30 seconds here, John, I'd like to play this clip for all of our listeners. This is uh, Dwight Eisenhower in January of 1961, a couple days before he handed the White House off to John Kennedy, his farewell address. He starts out talking about how we never had a permanent defense industry in the United States prior to World War II, but now this thing has come about, this defense industry. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic process. And that last half of that quote is almost never cited, you know, the danger of this. Well, it's, and, and the fact that, you know, he's almost warming, warning like a, 
some sort of you know prophet from on high, yeah. uh, warning to the future, guard against undue influence. Well, Tom, you're a smart man. Tell me, what could be more undue influence than a lifelong employee of a military contractor, one of the biggest military contractors, in fact, one of the biggest government contractors, taking charge of the Pentagon, perhaps for a lengthy amount of time, but probably when he gets done at the Pentagon, because it's the only work he's ever known outside of the federal work, I shouldn't say probably, possibly, going back to Boeing through that revolving door. Well, or he may go back to, he may start his own private consulting service and, and get a multi-million dollar contract with Boeing. I mean, you know, that's typically how it works. And, and Lockheed Martin and all the others, you know. It's, yeah, it's, of course, you're more cynical than I am, Tom. No, I just, um, I just, I used to live in D.C. I watch how these guys work. I mean, this is, this is the, this is the payoff, right, at the end of your, quote, public service. It's mind bug. Eisenhower was warning about. He was literally pointing to this guy. And we don't yeah. have to demonize this guy. We just have to acknowledge the reality of the Yeah, I'm with you. John Nichols, thenation.com. Thank you, John. Thanks, brother. What a pleasure talking yes. to you. Back at you. Tom Hartman program. Uh, Patrick Shanahan at uh, the Pentagon. I mean, it's getting weird out there, folks. You spend every day in your office chair. That's over 2,000 hours a year. So if you're spending all that time in the wrong chair, is it any wonder why you're sore and tired at the end of the day? Ditch that no-name, one-size-fits-all superstore chair and trade up to the X chair. When you feel the X chair difference, you'll understand. My X chair is the most stylish chair I've ever owned. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. Switching to the X chair, I'm more productive and have more energy. I love my X chair and you will too. X chair is now on sale for the holidays, so buy one for yourself and one for someone you love. X chair is now on sale for $100 off. So call 844-4X-CHAIR or go to xchairtom.com, that's xchairtom.com now, to save 100 bucks. And here's a special deal just for my listeners. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and they'll even throw in a free footrest. Go to xchairtom or call 844-4X-CHAIR and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, 844-4X-CHAIR. Today we're reading from Ralph Nader's Breaking Through Power. It's easier than we think. This is from page 74, the chapter, How the System is Rigged. According to Russell Mokaber, editor of the Corporate Crime Reporter, quote, corporate crime takes far more lives, causes far more injuries and diseases, and steals far more money than street crime. But the vast amount of law enforcement resources, mass media attention, and prison cell blocks are devoted only to street crime. Just consider these preventable casualties. Almost 60,000 annual workplace-related fatalities from both disease and trauma. 54,000 deaths a year from air pollution, over 100,000 lives lost as a result of medical malpractice, nearly 100,000 lives lost from hospital-induced infections, over 100,000 fatalities from adverse effects of drugs, and over 40,000 deaths every year due to inadequate or no health care coverage for diagnosis, treatment, and medication. There are far larger numbers of sicknesses and injuries attached to these data sets. These statistics have haunting human faces. Children, women, men, and families destroyed by uncontrollable, monetized minds. Whether they are caused by recklessness, criminal negligence, or worse, the key factors in common are the preventability of such pain and the suffering inflicted from commercially induced neglect, predation, manslaughter, and homicide. By comparison, street and home homicides 
do not exceed 14,000 lives lost annually. Now see how companies have made sure they have the laws that they need to go after you and how they make sure that the law can be used as their punisher. The giant multi-tiered home mortgage business, now driven by the same one percenters who profited from crashing the economy in 2008, can nail you if you misrepresent information on your mortgage application. Suppose you say you're going to occupy your house as a principal residence to get a lower interest rate and down payment, and you don't for some reason. Lenders can call the loan and demand repayment if the mortgage balance is outstanding. Absent that payment, the lender can seize your home, foreclosure. In addition, by claiming you committed bank fraud, these companies can use the FBI against you. As the veteran housing columnist Kenneth R. Harvey warned, this can trigger severe financial penalties, prosecution, and prison time for ordinary Americans. But how many bankers feel the cold metal of handcuffs tighten on their wrists when their crimes rob American families of their homes and life savings? Health insurance companies have similar supporting laws to deny medical coverage by alleging illegal activities. This could mean anything from non-disclosure of traffic violations to gun accidents, even when there has been no conviction. It could mean something as vague as hazardous behavior, according to the New York Times. If a company paid you and comes back for their money, they can get you prosecuted for fraud. These corporate goliaths are too big to fail, and they know how to enact laws to make sure that you are too small to stop them. Corporate state culture, the plutocracy boom oligarchy, is given an astonishing exoneration. So long as it claims the violence and mayhem are not their direct purpose, but an unfortunate byproduct that just couldn't be helped. Like when innocent people are accidentally killed by U.S. drone attacks, the government seems to quietly get a free pass. It's almost as if corporations get away with a permanent defense of an institutional insanity, a defense going global in terms of deadly supply chains, from horrific African mines to dangerous factories in China, in India, and Bangladesh, deoxygenation and poisoning of the vast oceans, estuaries, rivers, and lakes, upping greenhouse gases into rapid climate destabilization, extending the range of infectious diseases due to habitat and ecological disruption and desecration, and changing the nature of nature itself through unregulated genetic engineering and nanotechnology. Even with six million slow, agonizing deaths a year globally attributed to the tobacco business, Cigarettes are still demonically promoted by one percenters who reap staggering profits from selling their addictive and poisonous product, especially in developing nations where regulations protecting children do not exist. The excuse is forever that corporatists have no intention, knowledge, or reason to do harmful things. The institutional insanity defense again. Or the manufacturers of weapons of mass destruction, whose militant advertisements say they are just helping the national defense but are not at all responsible for their products' use in the coercive policies of empire and perpetual war. Is it institutional madness or infantilism? Did the World War II allies let the giant Krupp works in Germany get away with this excuse after the war ended? It's time for people to take away these rationalizations of omnicide from corporations that demand they be legally privileged as persons for their pursuit of profits, but not as persons for our pursuit of them as criminal predators and refugees from justice. In the 2012 U.S. presidential campaign, Republican nominee Mitt Romney asked about corporate personhood, replied that it was a given, saying, hey, corporations are people, my friend, like it was a science fact he learned in fifth grade. This is no mere throwaway line. Billions of dollars of litigating, advertising, marketing, and corporatist commentary have been focused on driving this people image into our minds from childhood. 
regularly. Full-page ads show that Goliath corporations like Walmart or Lockheed Martin are just people like you. The ads are filled with pictures and names of the faithful workers who bring you goods and services. The book by Ralph Nader, Breaking Through Power. Tom Hartman here with you. And Professor Robert Reich is the Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at the Rhoda Goldman School of Public Policy, University of California, Berkeley, former U.S. Labor Secretary, co-founder Inequality Media, and the author of numerous books, including his latest, The Common Good. Inequalitymedia.org is the website. You can tweet him at R.B. Reich, R-E-I-C-H. Uh, Professor Reich, welcome back to the program. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm great, and it's so nice to have you back on, and you are writing about uh, one of my favorite topics, which is antitrust law, <laughs> which... You, know, you say that and people's eyes glaze over, but this is the bottom line for capitalism, for functional capitalism, is that there has to be competition in a marketplace. And it seems to me, I mean, you, you write specifically about you know, the, the uh, e-business, which I want to get into, but it seems to me like there's not literally a single industry left in the United States that is not dominated by somewhere between three and six companies and functionally a cartel. What does this do to us? How has this affected America? Well, it means higher prices, for one thing. Monopolies are breaking out all over. It also means that innovation is being squelched, because once you have these big monopolies, it's very hard for smaller companies to get into the market with new ideas. And this is exactly what's been happening in high tech. Now, I remember back in the uh, early 1980s, I remember reading an article, and I hope I'm remembering this right, I mean, it's been a long time ago, but uh, reading an article in one of the papers, I think it was the New York Times, about how there was a debate in the Reagan administration about the enforcement of antitrust laws. And then over the course of the next year or so, it seemed like they had basically just stopped enforcing the antitrust laws. And it led to this explosion, what we called mergers and acquisition artists, right? These M&A artists, you know, the masters of the universe. And they made movies out of it. And was that the beginning of the massive consolidation? And is it actually true that Reagan, by and large, stopped enforcing the antitrust laws and that we haven't seen any consequential enforcement of them since? Uh, yes, I, I think that's essentially it, Tom. Ronald Reagan and the people around him decided that the magic of the marketplace could be trusted, and they didn't see something that even Adam Smith, writing in the 18th century, the philosophical figure who was the father of right-wing economics, understood. That is, if you don't do anything, if you simply let big uh, companies get together, and merge or acquire each other or become very dominant, then they begin to set prices. And not only do they set prices, and here's something we have actually witnessed. I mean, we witnessed it in the 1890s in this country. Uh, we did something about it. That was the beginning of antitrust laws. But they also have a political function. They use their dominant economic wealth and position to affect politics, to undermine democracy. And we are seeing that, obviously, all over the place, especially with the biggest companies that, that now, essentially, their big money and the big money of a handful of wealthy people are the key figures behind the Republican Party. And, and also, let's not mince words. I mean, Democrats are also taking a lot of big money from the biggest corporations that are big because they essentially were allowed to get hugely big and powerful. Yeah. In 1944, the New York Times asked Vice President Henry Wallace if there were American fascists and if we needed to worry about them. 
And his response was not what I'm assuming the Times was expecting. He basically called out cartelists, uh, or cartelists, or how, what, however that word is pronounced. He identified these as the American fascists, that their goal was to combine their economic power in a way that could seize political power and then use the combination of those two to keep the working man in eternal subjection. I think it was the last sentence of the article that he wrote for the New York Times. Is this, I, I, I've been referring to this for years as the cancer stage of capitalism uh, or unregulated capitalism. Are we there? Is that what's going on? Well, in many respects, we, we certainly are. We have to revive antitrust law. You said people's eyes glaze over. Uh, basically, this is government already has the tools to break up monopolies. Right. Uh, government used to do this. I mean, this is not some, we broke up Ma Bell, you know, the big telephone monopoly. And then Teddy Roosevelt, at the turn of the last century, uh, broke up the Northern Securities Railroad Monopoly, and we broke up the Standard Oil Monopoly. And we, you know, these gigantic monopolies dominated America, the American economy. They dominated American politics. Uh, and we can do it again. I mean, there's, there's, uh, in fact, we have to do it again. Now, the, the breakup of those monopolies back in the, in the late uh, 19th, early 20th century were, uh, there was enormous popular support for that, in large part because these, these giant industries were engaging in union busting. I mean, you had open warfare between workers and, and management. Um, there's not, I, I, I don't, perceive that that level of antagonism toward big business in the United States right now? Or is it there and, and it's just not as, as visible? It's not spilling out into the streets? Well, it's not very visible. We don't have, unfortunately, much of a labor union movement left. I mean, in the private sector, fewer than 7% of the workers in the private sector unionized. You know, in the 1950s and 60s, it was over a third. Uh, and when you have so few people who are unionized, uh, they don't have much of a voice. And we know American workers don't have much of a voice because uh, essentially wages for hourly workers, 85% of the economy, 85% of the workforce, uh, those wages have gone nowhere. Adjusted for inflation, they are exactly where they were about 30 years ago. Uh, and so these big monopolies are exerting huge power. Not only are they keeping prices higher than they should be, uh, and they're also stifling innovation, making it difficult for small businesses to get in, uh, but they are keeping wages down because they have so much power politically and economically over the economy. It seems that there, there are a couple of ways that, that uh, monopolies could be regulated or broken up or, or altered. Um, having to do with either vertical or horizontal integration. I mean, for example, if you were to say to Facebook, um, you have to divest yourself of all these companies that you've acquired, right? Instagram and all these other things and just be Facebook. Um, would that be a start? But then you still have Facebook having essentially a, a national monopoly in whatever Facebook is, whatever you call that. Or if you were to say to Amazon, you know, uh, you can sell books, and you can sell garden tools, but you can't sell everything else. Or, I mean, how, functionally, how do you do this? Uh, well, you put your finger on a couple of things that could be done. Uh, you could say that these big, and, and Facebook and Amazon and Apple, and these, these, are, these are the companies that are, in many ways, the largest, most powerful in the country right now, and Google. Right. You could say to them, uh, you've gotta, you, you cannot acquire any more companies. You cannot basically act as a monopolist using your huge profits 
uh, to gobble up other companies and make it so that those companies can't function as competitors. You can also tell them that they have to license some of their proprietary software uh, Mm. to other companies because much of their monopoly power comes in their networks, and that network effect becomes hugely important only because they have software that nobody else can get. You know, you could say, for example, to Google, your search engine is so dominant, nobody else can get in. You are abusing your power with the search engine. You're putting on the, you know, the first 10 searches, the various companies that you own, well, you can't do that anymore. You've got to license your search engine on the same terms to anybody else that wants to provide searches. Right. There are many things that antitrust could do. Uh, the final you know, nuclear option is basically to save these companies. You're being broken up. You know, you're going to be uh, busted up into 12 or 15 or 20 pieces. But that's not necessary. Uh, antitrust law is much more subtle than that. But it's, 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 got to, it's got to happen, Tom. Otherwise, these big companies, I mean, look what happened. The New York Times revealed uh, just recently that Facebook executives, they withheld evidence of Russian activity on the platform. Right. Uh, far longer than previously disclosed, and they employed a political opposition research firm to discredit critics. Now, how long is it before Facebook actually threatens critics, threatens to use the huge amount of data it has, the huge information bank that it has, to silence critics, essentially? This is the, the danger politically of monopolization. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson famously begged James Madison not to allow monopolies. He called them monopolies in commerce, and what he was talking about was patents and trademarks. Then later he wrote, three years, that should be the maximum. Wouldn't another way to do this be to change the copyright and patent laws and, and shorten the time that a company can hold essentially that kind of a monopoly? Uh, yes, certainly could do that. Google and, and Facebook and, and the others, they do depend on intellectual property, and that is their monopolies, and we could shorten the time that they could have patents and copyrights. But to the extent that they are based on network effects, and by network effect, I simply mean that the more people who use it, the more other people have to use it, because mm. everybody else is using it, that's not a patent problem. You really do have to force the companies to license their proprietary technology and allow others to get involved. Right, that's a critical mass problem, essentially. Yeah. Professor Robert Reich, his latest book, The Common Good, the website inequalitymedia.org. R.B. Reich is the Twitter handle. Uh, Professor Reich, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, John. Bye-bye. It's always great talking with you. I always learn something. Thank you very much. Hey, we have a whole bunch of special content just for our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman, uh, T-H-O-M, Hartman with two N's. It includes uh, you know, the entire three hours of our program every day. The whole, the, the entire program is available there that you can watch. And also, we regularly put up new rants. The one I just did is about the Supreme Court. And what can we do about it? There actually are ways that we can address this problem of the corruption of the Supreme Court. So check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow.
You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 